There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. Drive live. Talks legal. Our guest today is Ludmilla Yamalova from Yamalova and Pleska. Ludmilla, great to see you. Good to be here. So last week we were super busy. So we're reminding everyone again, if you do want to ask Ludmilla a question, you know what you need to do. Text us 4001 via the free messaging app or you can call us 423-1010. Now we have a couple of topics and I want to start off with this one straight away, Ludmilla. The first one is this. Um, how should a non-compete clause be drafted in a contract? How should it be structured? Um, and this is something that you probably get approached with quite frequently. And I guess this also depends on whether the salaries are commission-based because we get lots of messages about commission-based salaries and how that affects people in the long term. Yes, and the uh, what's important to clarify is the definition of non-competition. What we see over and over again is that there is a blending of a few separate legal principles into one being the non-competition. And so, but in relevant parts, non-competition, as it is referred often here, actually is composed of several parts. One is the non-competition, which is basically the right or the agreement between parties uh, for the departing party not to compete with the, uh, the the previous business. The other one is the non-solicitation, and that is the agreement of that party, let's say the employee, not to solicit employees of uh, the previous company. So that's a separate legal principle. So non-solicitation, non-competition uh, are separate legal principles. And then the third one is the um, is the non-confident or confidentiality agreement. And that's, once again, agreement not to share confidential information. <clears throat> and and um, each one of those principles are separate principles. So there are three uh, legal theories, but often they are being merged into one. And unfortunately, that causes a lot of problems and therefore lack of protection. Ultimately, we've seen clients uh, over and over again that come to, yes, we have a non-competition, but we actually read the non-competition. All it refers to is the restriction on confidentiality. Well, confidentiality is a very legal, is a very different legal principle for a number of reasons. One, it's based it, because it's 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 um, it only talks about information that belongs to a different party, not so much about parties. Um uh, action of, for example, competing, but it's the use of information. That's one, and that's a civil claim. But more importantly, confidentiality here is uh, it also has criminal sanctions, and that is when you use property of someone else for the benefit of somebody other th- than the owner of the property, it's basically theft. So mm. it's corporate theft. So here, that's why it also has criminal sanctions. And in fact, uh, in the UAE, most of the time, when you're talking about breach of confidentiality, it actually falls under the criminal domain, not civil. And yet, uh, companies and particular employers <clears throat> who have confidentiality agreements or non-competition agreements most of the time include this confidentiality and only and they refer to this as a non-competition uh, so one one overarching advice i would like to give is it is the importance of understanding the the separation between the different uh, principles and and outline each one of these principles separately because and depending obviously on the business some businesses for some businesses some of these principles are more important than for others but confidentiality in general for example it's um even if you do not have a provision in your contract that that confidential uh, that you are supposed to guard or protect the co- confidential information of of the previous company then you don't even really need to have it in the contract because it is covered statutorily it is, uh, that is by law so uh, so sorry to interrupt Ludmilla. um if take for an example if i was a heart surgeon don't think i'm capable of doing that but imagine i was and i was working at a hospital here and i, I decided tim was. yeah no, no that's I, what I, tim, I've, I've never broken a heart in my life 
But say, imagine I was a heart surgeon, for example, quite a specific role, quite a specific field, and I wanted to move to a different hospital. They offered me a role, the position was better for whatever reason. And um, in my contract, it says I can't work for this hospital or neighbouring hospitals because of the non-competition clause. Is that something that's easily enforceable in a in a role like heart surgery where there's not many hospitals you could go to? And this is what I wanted to start with the definition of non-competition, because overall, or generally speaking, non-competition uh, clauses in this country are enforceable but they are enforceable under two uh, with with two caveats important caveats one is that the non-competition is properly drafted and the example I gave earlier is not a properly drafted competition so if you have that sort of non-competition it's not going to be enforceable that's one and two it's enforceable in the sense of retroactive damages or claim for damages so in other words in this country there is no the courts do not issue injunctive relief of uh, precluding somebody from working. All they can do is that they can uh, they can grant compensation to the previous employer uh, for the damages they have suffered as a result of the competition of this, let's say, heart surgeon. But the but the premise, the, or, or the original premise, is that there has to be a properly drafted competition agreement or non-competition agreement. Now, what does that entail? In uh, in relevant terms, the, for, the infor- uh, for the non-competition agreement to be enforceable here, it has to be narrowly drafted and specifically drafted. And that's in terms of scope, term, and, and responsibilities. And so, in terms of or a geographic and geographic scope as well, so that so a lot of the non-competitions here basically say you cannot go work as a doctor in the region. Well, that's not going to be enforceable. I will tell you, it's not even going to be enforceable if it just says you cannot go work as a doctor in the UAE, because even though geographically the UAE is 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 a it's a smaller country than there's so many other countries out there, but it's still one country. So therefore, precluding somebody from practicing their trade in that country is is too broad. The courts always construe that as being too broad. So if you want to have a valid, in that case, a valid non-competition, you have to make sure that you specify the geography. The Using the UAE as a country is not is, is too broad. And also in terms of the responsibilities. So if it's just, if, if you're not able to practice as a heart surgeon, all you know is, is, is practice as a heart surgeon, once again, that's going to be too broad. But there are perhaps specific parts of heart surgery that, um, you know, I guess an employer might argue are proprietary to the previous company. So you may want to to restrict that heart surgeon from practicing those sort of nuanced areas of, of surgery if there's such thing and then also you have to um, to, ha- to be able to you have to make sure that the term of the non-competition is also reasonable that is the the, the length so mm. two years we see two years all the time that's it's it's too broad it's unreasonable uh, six months is more or less reasonable uh, because obviously the courts look at okay well if you're preventing a heart surgeon from practicing heart surgery w- w- what can they do otherwise so <clears throat> In other countries, and and this is this is sort of a little misunderstood here, is that you hear of people saying, "Well, I I signed a non-competition, so I'm not working for one year." Yes, that will be enforceable if you're compensated for this one year and not to work. So, what certain companies do is that they, let's say, in that same heart surgery example, they perceive that that particular heart surgeon has has acquired some very proprietary knowledge, and so if he were to go anywhere else, he truly would can be competing to the detriment of the previous company with a new company. So therefore, what they may opt uh, to do is to pay him for one year not to work. So those kind of non-competitions will be enforceable, but when you're preventing somebody from actually earning uh, or earning their keep, practicing their trade, those, will, those ones will not.
And just very briefly, we discussed about this uh, maybe specifically in cases of commission-based salaries. Take, for example, if you were maybe a letting agent or, or someone selling houses who was uh, their salary was based on commission only. Is this, does the same rules apply there? Uh, well, for non-competition or for yeah. the salary? Uh, well, the non-competition applies to irrespective of the trade. It yeah. just, it, but it, it obviously has to be reasonable. There are certain professions, for example, an assistant. I mean, how can you prevent somebody who is just an office assistant uh, from from non-competing? It's just from. I mean, it's you know what they do is so is so uh, so general. Um, so in most cases, with certain professions like that, the courts will not allow uh, will not enforce non-competition, even if they're very very ta- narrowly tailored, just because for somebody with those kinds of skills it's not likely they will truly be competing because remember competition really there has to be the ultimate objective and that is that particular person should be competing with the business uh, to the detriment of the previous business so just because they go and they work for someone else for example one of my lawyers goes and works for another law firm what doesn't necessarily mean that they are competing with me so Mm -hmm. but if they are taking away my clients and, and, and undermining my business I mean that's the competition that we're talking about so ultimately whatever non-competition clause you draft it has to have that element in it in terms of enforceability drive live talks legal we are talking legal this afternoon Ludmila Yamalova is here from Yamalova and Plethka answering your questions we've just been talking about non-competition clauses and Tim you have a question there don't you do you know what it is it's more about getting this straight so the point here is that you are trying to make Ludmilla is to get across how important it is to structure and to draft a non-compete clause we were talking particularly in the instance of commission-based salaries and what we have are three elements here of what is competitive what is confidential and what would be termed uh, solicitous uh, I guess that's and the problem here is the mix-up when people draft and structure clauses Let me give you an example, and it is specifically a sales example. I am a salesman. I am successful. I sell coffee machines. And I have a list from my company, which is a very big coffee machine maker. And I have a list of when people bought their coffee machine. And by definition, if I know when they bought it, and I have this database with their numbers and their email addresses and everything else, I know approximately that a coffee machine will last five years. I leave after five years of selling a great big job lot. And I go to the competitive coffee machine maker, for example. And I have proprietary information and a database that I have stolen from my previous employer. Now, that is a criminal act, isn't it? And in theory, the non-compete clause may or may not cover that. But the fact that I've stolen that information, uh, that's a criminal act. And it's covered under uh, the law, the federal law of the country anyway. So that particular, uh, in that particular example, you don't actually need to have a contractual clause yeah. that that expressly states that you're not allowed to use, let's say, my information. Um, let's say the coffee, the maker, manufacturing company. Mm. Uh, so, in the, because it, what what we're talking about here is theft, because yes. it's not so much just non-competition, because you can use all that proprietary data you took from me, and you can use it for a non-competing business. You can use it, for example, to sell just the database. So you see, it's not technically speaking non necessarily non-competition and the the two principles often are merged and often relate to one another but it doesn't always they don't always have to because you may just use that information for the benefit of, of gaining you're basically enriching yourself but not necessarily to the de- detriment uh, to me in terms of competing uh, but you're selling it but what mm. you're selling is a property that belongs to someone else so it's not non-competition you don't need to have a contractual 
outlined because it is it's it's basically criminal it's it's a criminal offense and that is you are stealing my information and you are using it uh, for your own benefit exactly so if i had sold that information onto a company that offers chemicals that clean coffee machines and the company that i previously worked for doesn't offer those chemicals so in theory that's non-competitive but it is still theft Indeed. And, but what is important to highlight, which we unfortunately do not see uh, very often here, is that now it's, a, it's a, the issue of proof. So how do, how do you now or how do, how do I now prove that that information that ended up in the coffee cleaning company, a coffee machine cleaning company, uh, company's hands, how do I prove that that information came from you, for example, my former right. employee? Mm. And that's where the problem lies, because a lot of the times companies do not properly protect the information. But properly protecting, and that is basically adding their signature, that that information is theirs, Mm. one, and it's proprietary. Often what companies say, you you know, you cannot disclose any kind of information, it's all confidential. Well, that too, that's uh, the the other side of the extreme. So so it's very important for the companies clearly identify internally what information is proprietary and which information is confidential, and then they notify their employees of, of such, and that they also somehow figure out a way, and there are plenty of ways of doing it, is to attach the signature to all that information that it's property is, is their property. So let's say with a database, it is possible. Obviously, if you just use use an Excel spreadsheet, it's very easy to temper with any kind of signature that might be attached to the Excel spreadsheet. But if you use secure software and secure applications, so that database, if it ends up in the hands of someone else, you'll always be technically speaking, you'll be able to be able to trace who it belongs to. But in most cases, what we see here is that that doesn't happen, and therefore, even when you know that the prop that's your property, end up in the hands of somebody else, you can't really prove it because you don't, you didn't really properly protect your information at the outset. Okay, we're going to go to the phones now. Juma is on the line. Juma, what's your question? Yeah, hi. This is uh, a little long, so I'll try and uh, summarize it to the best of my ability. So, uh, I had an investor visa from a free zone, and as per regulation, I had to pay a um, guarantee amount for each of my dependents' visas, which I did. And then I decided to take up a role with a local company, um, actually a bank. And um, so in, at which point I had to cancel my dependents' visas and then my visa to give uh, the new company um, my papers for processing. So I canceled my dependents' visa um, and on the same day I gave in my visa for cancellation. But that actually took two weeks. So my dependents' visa was already cancelled and my visa cancellation took two weeks after which um, um, the new company applied for my visa, completed my paperwork, got my, you know, paperwork done to be able to um, apply for the new visa for my dependents, by which time they had crossed the 30-day grace period. So I had to actually pay an overstay fine, which I did, um, because they did overstay, though it was no fault of mine. But now the original guaranteed deposit, the immigration is refusing to give it back to me because of the overstay. Now, the overstay was because of no fault of mine. It was because my visa cancellation took a lot longer than it should have taken. Um, so well, what, are my, what are my choices at this point? Okay, so uh, technically speaking or legally speaking, the dependents you're talking about, they are your dependents. They are under your sponsorship. Therefore, you are solely responsible for them. And therefore, their overstay or or the waiver uh, or the 
uh, of the of the deposit it's basically solely your responsibility and that's just that's the legal framework of it now if for example contractually you had an agreement with your new company that they will cover any expenses that are associated with the trend with your transition from one company to another there you could claim the um, the co- compensation for what you've what you've incurred um, on the basis of that contract, uh, but it's probably not likely that you had that was in the uh, original offer letter or in some sort of employment negotiations. But if there's something in there, then you can always rely on that. And obviously, you have now uh, you have proven uh, proven expenses or or the, the expenses that you have suffered that you can seek compensation for. Um, alternatively, you, it's just a matter of negotiations with your company because, again, legally speaking, it's your responsibility. It was your responsibility either, for example, for your dependents to leave and then claim the deposit back uh, or you know, one way or the other. It's They are your dependents. So... But, uh, but from the negotiation standpoint, uh, from commercial standpoint, you can always go in and you just discuss this with your new employer, explain to them the situation, and ask if they can compensate you for these um, unnecessarily d- unnecessary damages, which obviously you have suffered as a result of their delay. Uh, but you also need to know why why it took too, uh, longer for the company to cancel your visa. It could be that there were some factors that were attributable to you that that new company might claim. So obviously, you just need to understand the full picture. So if you think truly it was just because of their own fault, then you have a, a stronger argument to claim compensation. And uh, you should always be prepared to at least perhaps divvy up the or to share the uh, the expense, uh, perhaps 50-50 if they're not willing to cover 100%. But obviously, if all that fails, you need to make your own commercial decision whether it makes sense for you to make a stance with a company or just um, accept it as, as, as a cost and or as, a, as an expense and you know, accept the job and move on. Okay, Jim. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Just, just one quick one. I wanted to kind of uh, clarify that the visa cancellation, the delay was actually from the immigration. It was not from the company. The passport was given directly to the immigration, and they took more than two weeks for cancelling the visa. Well, sure, and and that's and that's obviously a, a very a, a very a legitimate uh, explanation from your new company standpoint in terms of well, it's not really their fault. So it's the authorities. It's really the authorities that took extra time. And obviously, here you can't. I mean, who are you going to blame? The authorities. I mean, it's it's not really reasonable because any time you deal with authorities, you should always. Uh, factor in additional time and so because it's really a third party anytime you talk about government you just need to it's it's not really a fault of anyone else so my recommendation is you just accept this and and move on so do probably not the answer you were looking for but that's that seems to be the case best of luck with it all thanks so we're going to continue with questions. We have um, a very interesting question from someone who was hit by a taxi. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes' time. Um, we just have a query followed up with what we were talking about, about competition. It says, For Miller, what about who initiated the separation at work? If an international company in Dubai makes someone redundant uh, with compensation versus resigning without compensation, is there still the ability to have a one-year restriction on work in terms of a competition clause? Uh, well, if we're talking about competition, the one-year restriction uh, related to competition versus um, uh, versus the ban, these are so, sort of separate concepts. And so I'm assuming the listener here is talking really about the one-year competi- non-competition clause. So it depends on how the the, com- the agreement is structured. So because some agreements will include a one-year uh, non-competition irrespective of which side uh, terminates the agreement, whether it's the employer or the employer. So, it's, so the starting point 
point in answering that question would be to actually look to look at the agreement itself. And unfortunately, from experience, most of the time, that particular question will not necessarily be um, I guess clearly uh, explained or, or outlined in the agreement itself, because sometimes you know these these sort of nuances are not addressed. Um, and uh, I guess so then in that case, you have two arguments. One is, well, is the is the non-competition agreement reasonable enough? Uh, and is it narrowly tailored and specific enough for the purpose in, in order to be enforced here? And if it isn't, then well, then it's invalid. Uh, altogether, and that's that's one standpoint. But obviously, that you would have to argue in court in the event the company takes an issue with uh, with you working for what they may deem as a competitor. And the other option is, since you are, if you're being, if you're, if 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 you're being terminated, uh, for example, then you just negotiate with them at the outset and um, and just have it clearly outlined that that particular clause, if it's not specifically outlined in the original agreement, that that it will not apply uh, moving forward because you are being terminated it's not that you are resigning on your own so it's it's more up to negotiations okay hopefully pm that answers your question our guest today is ludmila yamalova from yamalova and plethka and we've been answering your questions we have a question about maternity here ludmila it says my wife started working for a local bank in january and informed a future employer she was pregnant and this happened before she started the job so she took the job knowing that she was pregnant was very transparent about that after a few months the bank informed her that due to the fact she's working for less than a year um, her maternity leave would only be half paid. This was never discussed at the time of job negotiations when she informed them she was pre- pregnant. Is this normal practice in the UAE? Uh, from my recollection, it is that's sort of in line with what the law says, and that is in general. So maternity leave basically becomes the right to maternity leave um, comes due after one year of service. Um, so, and I think there's depends on the uh, on the term of service. Uh, sometimes there is an obligation to pay part of it, but it's but but my recollection is that within one year you're not really entitled um, to ask for any maternity uh, leave. Uh, but so in this case, if the bank offered half, I mean, it's if my my under my recollection of the law is correct, then that actually would be more generous than what the law provides for. But generally speaking, yes, maternity leave and one year of service are are um, go hand in hand. Uh, now, with regards to the employee not knowing about it and having sort of openly discussed it with the employer, that's really not the um, that's not the employer's or the bank's fault because ignorance of the law is no excuse because the law is very clear about maternity leave and maternity benefits uh, for employees. So just because the company did not advise her of it, that's not really the company's fault. I mean, ethically speaking, you would have expected for the bank to... Um, advise her of it, but it's not really their fault that she did not know the law to begin with. And the fact that they didn't advise her does not make them um, violate any particular law. Okay, we have Alex on the line who has a query, a, a quite an unusual question for Ludmilla. Alex, do you want to go ahead? Uh, hi, I have a question. Uh, I got an accident uh, a week ago and uh, I got hit by the uh, taxi car while crossing the you know, pedestrian crossing. And uh, it was clearly his fault. He beat uh, the red light. After all, uh, I got uh, traffic, uh, traffic court documents submitted to insurance. And uh, also in- I submitted to insurance the final bill of the medical. And my question is uh, on what kind of uh, compensation I can demand because they told me that they can only pay my medical bill. 
Uh, sure. So you're talking about your health insurance. So generally yes, speaking, yes. health insurance. Uh, I mean, no, it's uh, not a health insurance. It's a, a company uh, of the taxi uh, insurance. Uh, okay. Insurance of the taxi. Yeah. Right. Well, generally speaking, insurance it depends on and the insurance uh, policy, but insurance should cover all your damages that you have suffered as a result of this um, incident. Obviously, medical bills are a very, a very easy proof of, of your actual damages, and insurance companies just have absolutely no, uh, no legitimate reason to deny those. That's why they probably were paid first. Now, with regards to any any additional damages. Uh, yes, they are also obligated to pay for those. However, you have to prove that you actually suffered these damages and 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 submit proof in support of those damages. And this is where often uh, we see challenges in, in this particular country because uh, with with because people don't really have um, proper documentation to prove that they've suffered damages. So, mm-hmm. let's say in other countries there are claims available for emotional compensation or for future damages. In this jurisdiction, future damages are not awarded. It's the actual damages only. And if any anything in terms of emotional damages, if they're too speculative in nature, once again, the courts do not award speculative damages. So they need to have some sort of documentation uh, that is more or less uh, reasonably proven to um, to hold up in terms of what compensation you might suffer. So, for example, if you're if you have a a psychiatrist or a doctor who has said um, who can issue a report that you will have over the course of a year or two for example seek um, seek some kind of psych- uh, psychiatric treatment uh, to the tune of x amount of dirhams then that is admissible and the courts uh, will grant you compensation for that um, if, for example, you can also show that you were absent from work and as a result you were not being paid salary because of it, uh, that too can be covered. So any any other damages that are directly related to this accident um, are or sh- are recoverable. It's just a matter of how you submit, whether you have proof and how you submit that proof in order to... Um, uh, to claim compensation, but so if if you have suffered and you have proof for the damages, then definitely keep going with insurance company. Or sooner or later, they they will pay. And if they don't, you can always report them to the insurance um, authority here, who are quite effective in resolving these sort of disputes. Okay, Alex. Okay. Best of luck. Thank you very much. Hope you recover well. Thanks for calling. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have another question for you, Ludmilla, from Abdi. It says, I've been terminated with no reason with another colleague. Um, I have signed that I've received all of my end-of-service benefits with one month's notice period. That's the money I received one month. The other colleague didn't sign and made a case against the company. He was able to get three months' notice period from the court. Do I still have a chance to make a case to get the remaining two months? Uh, yes. Well, there are There's actually several concepts in here. One is, uh, can you... Can you still make a case? Yes, if it has not been more than a year uh, since you've signed your settlement agreement. Uh, because if it has been more than a year, then the statute of limitation has run for employment cases. It is one year, so that you will not be able to bring a claim for any damages that relate to your employment. And that's one. Now, can you can you bring a case? Let's say if you're still within the statute of limitation, can you bring a claim since you've signed this uh, this document that says that you received your dues? Yes, you can, because generally speaking, documents that are as as general as you as you've described, which is I've received all your dues, are not actually uh, considered by court as being co- courts by as being comprehensive enough to have conclusively. Uh, shown that you have been paid all specific dues. So, in in other words. 
It's not really a settlement agreement that the courts will rely on. So if there are other benefits that you, uh, by law, you can prove that you're entitled to, you didn't, you didn't receive them, that particular settlement agreement will not necessarily stand in the way unless it's very, very specifically drafted. Now, so that's two. And then three, in terms of... Um, the amount of compensation, uh, you're asking, you said that the other person asked, uh, received three months notice. Well, maybe what you're referring to is something else because there are separate concepts in employment law. One is the notice compensation and two is the arbitrary dismissal. Since you said you were terminated without notice, um, it's probable that your colleague was claiming arbitrary dismissal, which is the three months. Or if In the limited contract, it is um, it is the, the, the full three months. In the limited contract, it's up to three months. And so if you uh, if all you received is one month and you had a limited contract and you were terminated prematurely without good uh, without any reason uh, then you will be entitled to additional 3 months not 2 months so in other words arbitrary dismissal is in addition to notice compensation i'm not quite sure what your colleague received and what he claimed but in your case if if my sort of analysis is um, on point then you would be entitled to ask for 3 additional months okay hopefully that answers the question. Um, that's all we've got time for. Ludmilla Yamalova from Yamalova and Plethka, thank you so much for your time. Lots of questions we didn't get to. We will hold them over for next week, so don't lose heart. Ludmilla, thank you very much. Always a pleasure. There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com.